0: Good afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure this afternoon to be able to welcome uh, Christina Lamb to give this, this afternoon's um, guest speak uh, this talk. Um, Christina started her career in the Financial Times and then moved to Sunday Times, which is. Britain's biggest selling Sunday newspaper, probably Britain's biggest selling te- um, broadsheet. Series we always paper, say biggest selling quality paper. Quality paper, <laughs> however we <laughs> you define that, absolutely. <laughs> yes. uh, where she's been a, a foreign correspondent covering international affairs for uh, many, many years, and reported from all over the world, but has um, particularly uh, focused on Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, which is um, partly reflected in this one of the I think seven books you've written. Eight. Eight now. Sorry, I'm trying the times. Um uh, And indeed is reflected in the uh, title of today's uh, talk from Afghanistan to a More Dangerous World. So, Christine, you're very welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Much. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Um, I have quite soft voice, so if you don't... And also, I'm losing my voice, <laughs> which is not a great combination. So, if you can't hear me, tell me. Um, and it's great to be in Oxford because this is where I started my journalistic career at Charwell, the university newspaper. Um, the first piece I ever did was an interview with a bulldog at Christchurch. And then shortly after that, followed up with an exclusive of um, a student who was hit in the eye by a champagne cork. And, and actually that was an early foray into foreign affairs because that student actually was Radik Sikorski who ended up being the foreign minister of Poland, <laughs> I didn't know at the time. <laughs> um, so, and actually on my way here reading the papers I was of course reading all about the Calais jungle report. Um, which was reminding me, I mean, you're mostly journalists, you know what it's like to have news desks sending you all over the place, but it was reminding me of a particularly crazy day in June last year. Um, I'm also a mother and my son had just finished his GCSEs and was hanging around at home Mm -hmm. with not much to do, 16. And I have never, ever taken him on an assignment because I mostly go to quite dodgy places. Um, my foreign editor then called me and said will you go to Cali to the jungle Um, it was that time when there was a big strike of trucks and so there was queues of trucks and all these migrants and refugees trying to jump onto the trucks so he said why don't you go and go out with them at night trying to jump on and just spend uh, a night there and then come back the next day so I said fine and I was going with a photographer who is a good friend of mine, and then I looked at my son, Lorenzo, and I said, do you like to come with us? And he said, yes, I'd love to. So we took him with us, which was actually quite good, because going into the jungle where, uh, obviously, there are lots of young people, um, people spoke to him very differently than they did to me, and he got quite different stories and information, so it turned out to be very useful. Um, And we went out that night to try and watch them jumping on the trucks, Came back about 3 in the morning and went to bed and got up late, went for a leisurely French breakfast and I was then going to write my story and it was all cool and then we were going to go back. Oh, even the photographer had found a nice restaurant that we would go to for a French lunch and then we were going to go back. Huh. Um, we'd been having breakfast for about 10 minutes when my phone rang and it was my foreign editor saying there's been a beheading in Grenoble and you're booked on a train in 20 minutes. <laughs> so had to scramble, get my stuff, run to the train station. Fortunately this photographer was a good friend so he said he'd take my son back with him to London. Um, get on the train. While I'm on the train I notice on uh, Twitter about the attack in Seuss, the um, guy murdering not of tourists. So I then call my foreign editor and say, I've just seen this, shouldn't I go to tunisia so he said no no it's fine we're covered keep keep going on so i go to paris i change train i get on the train to grenoble i've by then been traveling for hours i then get a phone call saying actually we do need you to go to tunisia and you're booked on a flight um at it was a few hours time so i had to get a train back to paris it was the day that there was a huge protest of taxi drivers against uber drivers <laughs> so the, the traffic was all at a halt there were no taxes uh, eventually got a train to the um, airport just got there as the flight was going arrived in tunis at midnight got to Sousse about three o'clock in the morning on the saturday we're a sunday paper so saturday is our deadline um get about three hours sleep get woken up then at sort of seven in the morning or six in the morning to say oh by the way we still need your copy from calais which i had thought they would forget about because of everything else and i hadn't written so i had to quickly write that then go and um start reporting on that terrible massacre um and meanwhile, the photographer in Calais phoned me saying, oh, we had a bit of a problem with the car. We uh, drove <coughs> into a curb and the tire burst. So we've got stuck another night in Calais. So, um, so I was sort of trying to juggle getting my son home and covering these things. But it, I was thinking about that stay because it just reminded me of how crazy and how busy this... Um, one is as a foreign correspondent. I have never been in 28 years of doing this job as busy as I am now. There seem to be wars and terrorist attacks and conflicts popping up everywhere. It seems sometimes like those whack-a-mole games where, you know, you stamp out one conflict with a hammer and then another one pops up somewhere else. Um, And, you know, I was just saying to Richard, I remember the days where... Uh, There were several of us in London at the Sunday Times that all used to go off to cover conflicts and we would be arguing about who went to cover the one thing that was going on. Now there's so many things and it's actually now only me (laughs) because we don't have as many staff anymore. Uh, And so a lot of things go uncovered, um, which is sad. Anyway, we can talk more about that later on. But as Richard said, the particular war that I have really um, devoted a lot of my career to is Afghanistan. And actually, this talk is incredibly timely. I would like to say that we planned it like this for exactly two years today since Britain ended its combat operations in Afghanistan. This is the closure of Bastion. Last uh, or two years ago, um, which I was at, and um, which involved an incredibly impressive airlift of 17 waves of planes and helicopters leaving Bastion. Um, I think that the British government would like people to think that the war in Afghanistan ended that day, Um, And I'm afraid that the British media has kind of played into their hands because we pretty much stopped covering it after that day. Um, But the fact is the war in Afghanistan has got a lot worse since then. Um, Far more people are being killed in Afghanistan than at any time during the war. Um, this talk is also timely because it's 15 years ago this month since the bombing of Afghanistan started after 9-11 in response to that and trying to drive out Al-Qaeda and capture Osama bin Laden I don't think any of us covering that at the time ever imagined that 15 years on the Taliban would still be fighting and also that there would be another war on our TV screens and in our newspapers in Iraq, the battle now going on for Mosul, and this time against an even more deadly Islamic terrorist group than Al-Qaeda. Um, I don't know if any of you saw this story that I wrote in the Sunday Times magazine this Sunday, but it was um, interviews with Yazidi women and girls who were kept as sex slaves by ISIS terrorists. And I can honestly say it was the hardest story I ever wrote. Those stories that those girls had were absolutely horrific. And it really brought home just how monstrous some of these people are. One of the things that I argue in this book, Farewell, Kabul, is that I believe that a lot of these movements, uh, yeah, that's the piece, actually, on the, thank you, (laughs) on the ISIS um, sex slaves. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I argue in Farewell, Kabul is that um, ISIS really can be tracked back to the war in Afghanistan against the Russians. and our support, the West's support for jihadis to fight the Russian forces, um, which I think was uh, a big mistake, but we can talk more about that. And so I, I wrote this book really because I was angry at having seen a lot of friends and soldiers killed in Afghanistan, and I wanted to answer a question to myself which was, was it worth it? There were 3500 NATO soldiers killed in Afghanistan, uh, 456 British soldiers, um, and then tens of thousands who lost limbs or were scarred in other ways, and um, it cost 800 billion dollars. So I really wanted to answer for myself if that had achieved anything. And also, I feel very strongly that we should still be covering the situation in Afghanistan because I think it would be terrible after all that sacrifice if um, we just forgot about it. Now, like maybe some of you here, I've spent a lot of the last year and a half covering refugee crisis in Europe, the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And much of the focus of course has been on Syria, Syrian refugees. But actually the second largest group of refugees coming into Europe have been Afghans. And a quarter of a million Afghans have come into Europe. And last month I was actually in um, a camp in, on a Greek island, Leros, and I met this beautiful Afghan girl called Chuba and she told me that she had left Afghanistan because she was learning English and she lived in a northern village and Taliban came into that area and threatened her father and said your daughter is learning a heathen language and we will kill her if she doesn't stop. And her father didn't take this seriously to start with, but then other people from the village came and said, the Taliban are here and are about to kill you and your daughter, you better get out. So they fled and ended up getting to Greece, like many people, borrowing lots of money. Um, unfortunately, they by the time they got there, it was just after the doors were closed in March. And so like many people, about 58,000 people, they stranded in a camp in Greece. And, um, and they have nothing to do. And this lovely poor girl, just there, absolutely nothing to do all day. And they're not getting education. And she said to me, it's kind of ironic that we fled afghanistan so that i could learn uh, english and have education and now we're in greece and we don't have education and they'll probably get sent back because the um eu recently earlier this month agreed to give 15 billion dollars to afghanistan but the deal was that afghanistan would take its refugees back from the eu um, and so you know they they don't have a great prospect. And the fact is, they would not be leaving Afghanistan if the situation wasn't so bad. They're not leaving because they think they're going to earn more money in in Europe. The fact is, in Afghanistan today, the Taliban holds sway not just in. Traditional areas in the south and east but in a lot of areas in the north um, in fact while that donor meeting was going on um, Taliban were storming into the northern city of Kunduz for the second time and in Helmand Which kind of became Afghanistan for the Brits because that's where our troops were based um, it's now estimated about 85% of of Helmand is in Taliban hands and Lashkagar which is where the British troops had their headquarters would have fallen I think if it wasn't for the fact that the Americans have now sent about 550 troops back into Helmand Um, and as if that wasn't bad enough ISIS Daesh is also um, establishing a foothold in eastern Afghanistan. So, this country that we went into partly to end it being a safe haven for terrorists is now once again acting as one. So, what went wrong? How did, I mean, we had 140,000 native troops in Afghanistan with the most sophisticated technology and weapons like missiles that cost the price of a Porsche. Um, How come they couldn't defeat less than 20,000 Taliban? Well, I thought I would just start by telling you a little bit about how I got involved with Afghanistan. Um, This is not the right slide. Um, It all started with a wedding. Like many things in journalism, um, I think, serendipity plays a big part. And I, when I started, as a journalist, I started interning at the Financial Times after leaving Oxford and one day I was um, sent to a lunch of South Asian politicians by the foreign editor He was supposed to go and he couldn't go last minute and he said to me, you're always going on about India, why don't you go to this? So I went and I sat next to somebody who was the uh, Secretary General of Pakistan People's Party, which was Benazir Bhutto's party. And he said to me, Would you like to interview her? Of course, I said yes. (laughs) She was living in exile in London at the time. So I went to interview her, and the day I interviewed her was the day that she announced her engagement to Asif Ali Zadari. And so her apartment was full of bouquets of flowers, and we got on very well. She was very good at charming foreign media, particularly men, I think. Um, and then she went back to Pakistan and I got a job in Birmingham as a trainee at Central TV which is a regional news company and one day I came home from work and on my doormat there was the most beautiful gold inscribed wedding invitation um, and it was to Venice's wedding in Karachi and um, Of course I said yes. (laughs) um, I'd never been to Pakistan. I took my holiday and um, went and I had very little money because I was just starting out and so Benazir actually was very good. She arranged for me to stay with her secretary so I didn't have to pay for a hotel. And she invited me to all the events for friends and family. So, not just, I mean, if you are familiar with South Asian weddings, you'll note that they're very big, they go on for days. Hers went on for about a week. Mm-hmm. And being Benazir, it was kind of spectacular. It was like something out of Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. But every night after all the ceremonial um, events, there would then be these discussions in her house with her political. Um, colleagues about how to topple Pakistan's military dictator, General Zia. And I was fascinated, so I couldn't really imagine going back to covering local news in Birmingham. So uh, when I got back, I gave him my notice. In fact, the last story I ever did for Central TV was a man who turned his car back to front, so it looked like it was going forwards when he was going backwards. <laughs> I don't think I was great loss to TV. <laughs> Um, but I went and talked to lots of foreign editors about covering Pakistan, and nobody was interested. They all said nothing happening in Pakistan. General Z has been there for years; he'll carry on being there. Um, but they were interested in Afghanistan because so this was eighty-seven, and the Russians were still in Afghanistan. So um, I. So I'd never set out to be a war correspondent, but this just kind of um, happened by accident. So I said, "All right, I'll go and live in Peshawar in the northwest Pakistan and start covering Afghanistan." I'll get back here. So this is my first press pass. <laughs> Horrible pun. Um, and I had no idea actually what foreign correspondents did. So I'd never really met one, and <laughs> I. Um, nor what they needed so I set off I had this suitcase with a giant bag of wine gums and um, a trade bottle of Chanel number no. five perfume I had a, a copy of Rudyard Kipling's Kim and I also had a Tandy word processor I do not know if you're old enough to remember where you could just see three lines of green on green only four word processors um, and so I set off and took something called the flying coach up the Grand Trunk Road to Peshawar. I had no idea where I was going to stay, so I asked a rickshaw driver to take me to a cheap hotel, and he took me to somewhere called Green's Hotel, which actually turned out to be where arms dealers stayed. <laughs> I discovered this because someone actually tried to sell me a Chinese multi-barrel rocket launch, <laughs> very cheaply. So... Um, As I said, I didn't really know what Frank Christmas did, and I found out that there were seven different Afghan resistance parties that were all fighting the Russians, so I thought, well, I'll go and see each one, and in fact, you know, most normal journalists just found out which were the important, effective ones, and went to them, not every single one. But because I went to all of them, I ended up going to the smallest one, which was run by somebody called Professor Mujadidi, and his spokesperson... Was a certain Hamid Karzai, um, who in those days, you know, nobody knew who he was, he, um, and no one ever really ever went to speak to them because they were so small. And so he was delighted to have a foreign correspondent to speak to. And he was also, in those days, um, rather an Anglophile because he'd gone to school in Simla in um, India, the old hill station and he loved English poetry and Somerset Maugham stories and Cabris Chocolates and so we got on very well and he said to me if you want to understand Afghanistan you need to understand the tribes of southern Afghanistan so come to my house so I went to his house for dinner and it was full of elders from Uruzgan and Helmand and Kandahar and all these places and they all had amazing stories, Afghans, if you have covered Afghanistan, are great storytellers and so they all started telling me these stories, most of which seemed to involve killing people and much of which didn't involve the Russians, so it started to become clear to me that actually, you know, this was much more complicated than what I had seen as a black and white, you know, good guy, is Afghan Mujahideen against the evil Russian communists, it was actually, all these different tribes, some of which were aligned with the Russians, some of which were not, which was actually very useful to know in the future. And so I started going in and out of Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. Um, this is a really attractive photograph. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> After not washing for quite a long time. <laughs> um, and... When I wasn't traveling with the Medjirdin, I was in Peshawar, there was a place called the American Club, which was where a lot of journalists used to go to because you could get um, hot dogs and you could get beer. Um, And this was on a road in university town in Peshawar, which just along the road was a guest house where a certain Osama bin Laden used to welcome his Arab fighters. Now in those days, um, I'd never heard of Bin Laden, I knew that there were a lot of Arabs fighting and I knew that the Afghans didn't like them, they were frightened of them really. But of course in those days we were all on the same side, they were fighting the Russians too and I think, you know, never did we imagine that those people would in years to come and become fanatical terrorists who would fly planes into the World Trade Center mm-hmm. um, or that one of them that was there um, Abu Musab Zakawi who was a Jordanian gangster because um, basically most of them were kind of bad guys who their own countries were happy to get rid of and um, encouraged to go and fight in Afghanistan. And so Zakawi ended up, um, he was there and set up a training camp in Herat and then in 2003 ended up then moving to Iraq and starting spreading kind of sectarian um, fighting which led to what is today ISIS. So to write that book, which actually is very long, but it covers 27 years, I went through all my notebooks. I had kept everything. And it was really chilling going back. I don't think we often go back to notebooks from many years ago. Um, Realising that some of the people I'd interviewed had actually ended up becoming kind of key figures, sometimes in bad ways. And um, and seeing how really short-term decisions made At the time ended up having these terrifying long-term consequences and one of the interviews that I came across was with Pakistan's um, head of military intelligence at the time a man called General Hamid call and I had an interview with him in 1989 where he said to me you in the West think you can use these fundamentalists as cannon fodder then abandon them but it will come back to haunt you um, well, obviously reading that after 9-11 you feel quite differently so when I was there covering that war I never imagined I would be back uh, 25 years later covering my own country fighting in Afghanistan and I think it's easy to forget now um, but at the beginning when um, the Taliban were driven out in 2001 it actually seemed like a great success you know I mostly cover bad things um, that felt like a happy ending you know people were smiling uh, I remember Christmas 2001 sitting on top of the roof of the Mustafa Hotel in Kabul and and thinking I'm feeling really happy like people are playing music there were kids playing and flying kites and it felt like you know this was a good ending to things um, and um and also you know it not cost very much money it was 3.8 billion dollars it costs that war and five western lives were lost um one of them a cia agent and four soldiers and three of those were actually killed by an american bomb so it, it wasn't even in fighting with the afghans And I interviewed a guy at the time who was the commandant of the Royal Marines in Britain called Rob Fry, And he said, all of a sudden we thought we'd found the Philosopher's Stone of Intervention. Um, Of course, we should have known better. Um, It ended up being the longest ever war for America and Britain's longest war since the Hundred Years War and really exacted a heavy toll in blood and treasure this is an ambush that I was in in 2006 in Helmand which we were really lucky to escape with our lives i think um despite declaring the war over for britain at the end of 2014 we actually still have 500 troops there and there are about 13,000 nato troops which originally was supposed to be on a basis of train, assist and advice, but actually have had to relax those r- restrictions to get more involved, because it turns out it's not as easy as that um, Taliban fighting on. They turned out that Mullah Omar was dead. Um, then their new leader, Mullah Mansur, was killed in a drone attack. Now they have another leader, Mullah Akhonzada and um, actually they've made considerable inroads as i said at the beginning they are in a lot more places than they were and the other thing that we were always very concerned about poppy production because um afghanistan produces most of the world's heroin has gone up enormously uh, the latest report showed it went up 43 percent last year and then in terms of you know life for the average Afghan, uh, civilian deaths are at an all-time high. There were 3,500 Afghans killed last year and 5,000 Afghan security forces. Um, and if you go to Kabul now, uh, it's so dangerous. And Kabul, any of you that covered it will know, you know, it used to be really safe. Mm-hmm. Kabul is so dangerous that um, diplomats when they go there actually take a helicopter to go the one mile from the airport to the embassies um, and the idea was when we pulled our troops out that Afghan forces would have been trained. there were more than 300,000 of them that they would um, keep the Taliban back but um, they really Struggling to do so, and they're taking casualties. I think at a really unsustainable level. In in one week alone in August, more than a hundred Afghan soldiers were killed, and this means that their morale is very low. And so, lots of them are abandoning their posts. And the new police chief in Helmand, when he went there, said he'd been told that there were 26,000 Afghan security forces in Helmand. And he found he'd actually only got 40% of that. Well, there were 26,000 on the payroll. (laughs) Um, um, So, you know, it's, it's pretty grim, the situation. So I suppose the question is, are we in danger of Afghanistan actually falling completely to the Taliban? Well, Kabul is quite easy to defend. So I don't see Kabul actually falling at the moment. And I also, I mean, I'd hate people to think that I feel that the whole thing was a waste of time. We didn't achieve anything. Um, There are far more kids at school in Afghanistan today. There are 9 million children at school. It was only a million um, after 9-11. The health system is much better. One of the things that makes me laugh when NATO forces do these kind of legacy presentations about what they achieved is they say that there are now 19 million mobile phones in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, you know, did the British public really think we went there to spread the joys of Vodafone? <laughs> um, but actually, it's, it sounds trivial, and it's not, because when I covered Afghanistan the first time, when the Russians were there and then left, Afghanistan was completely cut off from the rest of the world. It didn't even have a direct phone service. All phones had to go through Pakistan. And so, you know, people really were living in almost as though they were a few centuries earlier and um, had no idea what it was like outside for the most part. Now, because people have phones, they do know. And I had a funny experience. I went um, to a place called Samarkand, which is a very poor province in the north, went to a small village and um it's subsistence farming it's really poor lots of the villages have been abandoned it's so poor and i sat with these elders in this room and suddenly a phone rang and i was surprised that there was phone in that area so this guy got out his phone and it was smartphone which also surprised <laughs> me so i said how many of you have got phones so all of them held up their phones. <laughs> um, and, and then they said to me we're on Facebook too <laughs> so I was like well who do you Facebook and they said our wives <laughs> um, but then they said to me actually it's really changed our lives and I said well, why and they said because our only income is selling wheat and once a year a man would come from mazar sharif and buy our wheat and basically tell us how much he was paying and that was it And now we can phone the market in Mazar-e-Sharif, so we know how much we should be paid for the week. And now we get more money. So, you know, it actually had changed things quite a lot. But the fact is, for all that 800 billion poured into Afghanistan, you know, this is what it mostly looks like. It remains one of the poorest places on earth. And a third of people in Afghanistan live on less than 80 pence a day. And as for an issue which is very close to my heart, women's rights, um, you might remember that when the <coughs> Taliban were driven out, one of the things that President Bush and Tony Blair made a big issue about was that women of Afghanistan will be free again. Um, and some good things are happening. there. Are, I've met female rappers in Afghanistan. And I've been to a girl's coding class. But the fact is, many Afghan women are still living in fear. Um, 60% of marriages in Afghanistan are forced marriages, often involving very young children. Um, And a lot of the women that we, in the West, encourage to stand up, to run for office, to do different things, to go and speak at international conferences, are now living in fear of their lives because we have left them and they've become targets and some of those women have been killed Um, others have fled others are in fear i can show you on my whatsapp i get endless messages from women that i know there that are terrified and feel that they've been abandoned Um, you might remember a year ago the horrible killing of fakunda the trainee teacher who was killed by a mob in middle of kabul Um, beaten to death, set fire to, thrown off a roof, run over by a pickup truck, and then finally thrown into the Kabul River. And the fact is that happened in the middle of Kabul, about a mile from the um, presidential palace in the middle of the day, and the people that carried that attack out were not some kind of bearded remote village taliban who didn't know anything these were young urbane kabuli men who carried out that attack and then posted what they'd done on youtube and facebook so i think afghanistan in terms of women's rights have a long way to go frankly The other thing that we were told about why we were in Afghanistan was national security that we fight them there so as not to have to fight them here. Well, I don't think many people would feel that they're safer today um, than they were before 9 11. Um, On the contrary, we not only still have the Taliban in Afghanistan, we have Pakistan Taliban who are more dangerous. Uh, we have various offshoots of Al-Qaeda in Yemen and in Islamic Maghreb, um, Boko Haram. I was in Nigeria earlier this year and, I mean, they've carried out more deadly attacks than just about any group. Um, and then, of course, Daesh or ISIS and um, not only beheading people and threatening and setting up the evil caliphate but also attracting a lot of Western Young people to go and join their ranks, who then may come back and launch attacks here. So, like I said at the beginning, I mean, it does seem to me that there are now more countries undergoing insurgencies than at any time since World War Two, and yet our militaries are less equipped, um, and public less. keen to intervene in any of these things. And they're also very complicated. I mean, there are so many Arab states and factions engaged in so many different wars, and we are actually, you know, on different sides in different places. So in the battle for Mosul at the moment, we're on the same side as the Iranian militias, but next door in Syria, we're on the other side from them. So it's very confusing. And... Um, I think Afghanistan is worth looking at because it gives a lot of lessons I think in what should and shouldn't be done and I think we should look at how we turned that initial success that I described in Afghanistan into a defeat because I think if we understood that we would understand why we can't seem to end wars anymore and no one really comes out well from my book um I blame, I guess, I would say it's more a political problem than a military problem. As General MacArthur said, it's fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. And it seemed to me that after the initial stage of toppling the Taliban regime, we didn't really know what we were trying to do. And we didn't understand what we were going into. I talked at the beginning about the different tribal Um, The complexities of Afghanistan. Now we sent troops into Afghanistan, um, six-month rotations. How can you go for six months into this really complicated society and where it really matters who you know and then um, have really any understanding of what's going on? And we didn't. So, you know, we were employing people from one tribe not realizing that that would really piss off people from another tribe and that they might then go and start fighting against us with the Taliban Um, and a lot of the fighting wasn't Taliban and we didn't understand it we labeled it as Taliban so the British in eight years in Helmand got through 17 different military commanders each of whom you know thought it was their own war and went in with their own new ideas and on a nas- uh, um, national level in Afghanistan, um, the NATO forces um, similarly got through, um, I think also 17 commanders. And it's funny because they used to each commander used to plant a tree outside the headquarters in the Kabul. But I think after it got to about 13 trees, they realized that this was getting a bit embarrassing. So they stopped planting them. And people often point to the war in Iraq as why things went wrong in Afghanistan. Um, And obviously that did distract people's attention and it enabled the Taliban who had gone into Pakistan um, to actually start regrouping and retraining and raising funds and taking advantage of that to come back. But I kind of think it would have gone wrong anyway oh, I've been forgetting to show you slides mm-hmm. uh, okay it's uh, an amazing woman <laughs> yes. um this is uh, the British in Afghanistan right yeah so I can't think it would have gone wrong anyway and I think one of the things was um we strangely we didn't Talk to people about what had gone on before. The British, of all people, should have known because we'd fought three wars in Afghanistan, lost two of them. Um, but actually, there was a more recent experience, which was the Russians in Afghanistan. And if you go to Herat, which is my favourite city in Afghanistan, a warlord called General Wahab has built something on top of a hill called the Jihad Museum, and. Um, I went to visit this jihad museum and it's full of um, all sorts of captured weaponry from the Russians but it also on the top floor in this dome has this amazing sound and light show which comes with kind of blood-curdling screams and bullet noises it's quite bizarre and very grisly and um, the General Wahab said to me, not only have we got lots of captured Russian things, but we have an actual Russian. So I said, what do you mean? And he said, this man here, the guide of the museum, was a Russian soldier, was captured during the war in the late 80s and ended up staying there and marrying um, a local woman and he now is the guide to how the the afghans defeated the russians and general wahab the warlord said to me when he dies we'll bury him in the museum and then we'll have a dead russian (laughs) (laughs) Um, but anyway it is incredibly grisly this thing and you can't really go there and think anybody could imagine it was a good idea to invade afghanistan um, and so actually I said to the Russians did NATO come and speak to you about your experience and they said no and I was astonished and they, the Russian ambassador for example, he'd spent 15 years in Afghanistan He was a fluent Pashto speaker really knows the country and Nobody bothered from any other of our countries to go and speak to him and I said what would you have said? if they had come and he said Afghanistan is very easy to get into and very hard to get out. <laughs> so, um, I think I might stop there because it would be good to sort of have a discussion about okay. things. that was fantastic. Um, Thank you very much.